0: Stem Cell Podcast, From Academia to Industry, with Dr. Steve Silvasi. Hey everyone, this is Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field, you know, this is Arun's first episode as a host of the podcast, and we are so excited to have him on the show.
1: It's going to be a good time, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks to uh, Stem Cell Technologies for, the, for giving me a shot. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to we're gonna have a good time, man.
0: Yeah, don't thank us, bro. We're thanking you. You're bringing some legit <laughs> pedigree to the table. You're a killer out there in the field. You're young. You got an active Twitter feed. You're gonna change the game, bro, and we're just glad to have another voice here joining us with the expertise. A little bit of banter, a little bit of good times, and making a nice you know, interview, talking to some of the brightest minds, and I feel like we always do. Adding a team member here, it's really exciting, man. Seriously, excited to get started.
1: You guys added me for my Twitter, didn't you? Yep,
0: yep, yeah, we're using you for your Twitter. <laughs> as but...
1: long as you're straight up about it, I don't <laughs> care. It's all good, man. Yeah, we need a little bit more social on here,
0: but, uh, you know, that amongst other things. You're, you're a brilliant young mind, and uh, we're excited to get started. Now, folks, before we get into today's episode, the inaugural of Aroons, we have a treat for you all. Starting next week, we're going to be coming at you with special mini-series of episodes recorded at the recent ISSCR annual meeting These are going to be published off-week of our regular scheduled episodes and are going to feature conversations with some pretty big names, including, but not limited to, Sir John Gurdon, Nobel Laureate. We also spoke to a number of research trainees about the state of stem cell research and their thoughts on the meeting, so don't miss out. Check out iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts next Tuesday, August 27th for the first of the three-part series.
1: It was a good time, man. I was out there at the ISSR. We met up out there, you know, sunny California, kind of convinced me to stay out here. And now I'm in L.A. long term. So that's what ISSCR does to you, you know, yeah, makes it you away. stick to. Yeah,
0: takes you away, takes you away, makes you stay. Uh, we got rune Rep in the West Coast. Um, so, yeah, listen in for that. We're going to have a few, a little window into that. Unfortunately, we didn't talk to him there officially because we were still in the DL, but uh, we had dinner, we had drinks, we had some good times. Getting back to today, we got Dr. Steve Silvasi from Stem Cell Technologies on the podcast to talk about his journey transitioning from academia to industry and his eventual rise to senior director of hematopoietic products and R&D at the company. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up, but first... We all know that CRISPR-Cas genome editing in cell culture systems is a powerful technique for disease modeling and the development of cellular therapies compared to work with immortalized cell lines. Genome editing of stem and primary cells presents unique challenges, though, all right, including issues related to efficient delivery, expression of CRISPR machinery, clonogenicity, cytotoxicity, all that stuff. Join Stem Cells Live webinar with Dr. Ashley Watson, also on August 27th. That's going to be a big date. On that date, you can listen to our off-peak episodes. You can also learn about high-efficiency f- CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing in these difficult-to-manipulate cell types in that webinar with Dr. Ashley Watson. Visit www.stemcell.com crisprwebinar CRISPR webinar to register. If you don't already know that CRISPR is spelled C-R-I-S-P-R, then you don't belong in that webinar, okay? Stemcell.com CRISPR webinar
1: it's kind of a big deal these days CRISPR, yeah, you might have
0: heard of it yeah, maybe might. if you haven't if you can't spell it you know go somewhere else uh arun i think it's time man i think it's time for your first roundup are you ready to bring it let's do it man let's give it a shot and we'll take it away
1: all righty so first off we got uh we got something coming to us from the land of the rising sun Japan, overseas, from the group of Kichiro Tomoda over at the Riken. And this is actually a paper that was kind of jointly worked on between the Riken and also folks at the Gladstone Institutes over at San Francisco. You might have heard of a a guy by the name of Shinya Yamanaka, maybe. (laughs) So the title of the paper is called Induced 2C Expression and implantation Competent Blastocyst-Like Cysts." from primed pluripotent stem cells. And so basically these guys have uh, generated 3D blastocyst-like structures from stem cells. And just as a reminder, the blastocyst is kind of that hollow ball of cells that shows up early on during during development that ultimately gives rise to the embryo. And of course, as we know, the inner cell mass from these blastocysts also are, you know, what we use for making embryonic stem cells, right? So. Blastocyst is super important for, you know, a whole variety of reasons. But I guess the big kind of unanswered question here is, you know, we know that embryonic stem cells are pluripotent. There's still kind of a dream in the field to make like a totipotent population of cells. The population that can give rise to not only the the somatic tissues and all the the regular cells of the body, but also to the placenta. And so that's the big difference between totipotent cells and pluripotent cells, right? So we don't necessarily need the blastocyst to make the pluripotent stem cells, right? And so Shinya Yamanaka showed over a decade ago that you can make these induced pluripotent stem cells that, you know, everybody and their mom is using these days, right, Uh, as as another type of pluripotent stem cell. And this is through reprogramming adult somatic tissues instead of harvesting these cells from the inner cell mass of the blastocyst. But one big dream has still been, you know, as I mentioned, going from pluripotency to totipotency or the ability to give rise to everything, right? Not only the the somatic tissues, but the placenta as well. And so previously, these same folks in Japan were able to convert pluripotent mouse embryonic stem cells from an implanted blastocyst-like state to the pre-implanted state, and in doing so saw some structures that actually looked like early blastocysts so they were like huh what are what are these things you know is there are these actually the real deal are these like pseudo blastocysts like actual real blastocysts and so this study is kind of a follow-up to that one so they wanted to check to see if these structures that look like early blastocysts during their deprogramming process were actually the real deal and so they could show that when you reprogram these cultured mouse pluripotent embryonic stem cells to form these self-assembling blastocyst like structures, uh, you only need a few natural molecules to do that, and those molecules are, you know, found naturally in the early embryo, and they actually have a pretty nice methods of, you know, how they're able to generate these pseudo But the important thing is that when they generated these pseudo they actually saw that they Express some genes associated with totipotency, which of course is the idea that you can make all cells of the body, including the placenta. And so finally, the real test, of course, is functional, right? You want to see if these pseudoblastocysts are the real deal. And so what they did is they actually implanted these blastocysts into pseudopregnant mice. And they saw that these pseudoblastocysts actually mimicked the real thing and causing changes to the uterus, just like, uh, just like the real thing, such as linking to the maternal blood supply, for example. And after implantation, the blastocyst-like structures actually kept on growing and produced a lot of the cells that are found normally in developing embryos, too. They also checked gene expression. They saw that the genes normally expressed in blastocysts are there, but at a lower level than the real deal. So suggesting that there's still some room for improvement for, for this particular technique. So they're not real embryos, they're not real blastocysts, but they're pretty close. And eventually after, you know, the implantation process in these mice, these pseudoblastocysts were resorbed back into the mother's body in a similar fashion to actually what happens naturally too. So I think it's a neat study. I think it's pushing us closer to that kind of holy grail of reprogramming, the idea of generating cells that are not only pluripotent, but totipotent, which, you know, again, is the ability to to make everything. So not quite there yet, but, you know, I think we're getting there.
0: Bro, I like this story because it had, I think it had, a, so, okay, I'll start with, there's a, a bit of a precedent here, right? So Zernica Goetz a while back did a little bit where she assembled the troph and the ICM, you know, ES, regular cells, and made a kind of pseudoembryo. And then Nick Rivron. I remember we had Nicholas Rivron on the podcast, actually, talking about his blastoids, where he did a very similar thing. But the novelty here is that they spontaneously emerge under these defined conditions. Instead of taking the one type of cell, the troph, and then the other type of cell, the ES, and then assembling them into a pseudoblast, into the blastoid, whatever you want to call it, these guys, they had the spontaneous element, but just like ne- Rivron, that when you do the implantation, they don't, you know, it doesn't make an actual embryo, like you said, we're close, but we're not quite there. And I think that's the real, the, the, the thing for me, like the thought exercise, just you know, to discuss briefly, like you can take an ES cell, right? And you can put it in a, in a, you know, uh, uh, Blastocyst that's been fused, so you know, tetraploid, so that only the ES cells will give rise to the embryo. Okay, so that shows that the embryo, of course, alone is competent. But in this case, the ES cells, like you can do, like Riran says, or you could do, like they did in this group, they can form the shell that can implant. But the ES cell, if you took normal ES cells and put it into that blastoid or pseudoblastis, would it then form an embryo? I would argue no. The fact that you're getting implantation but then resorption, not like actual embryogenesis, really, I think, emphasizes how specialized these trophectoderm cells are. And that although they can form something that looks like an embryo, there's something about that process. Like, I know they're implanting and they're forming the maternal fetal interface, kind of, but that complex, that that whole process, I think, is a lot more complex than we realize. And this type of model is going to allow us to really delve deep into mechanistically, molecularly, what the heck is going on in there? And it's so important to, you know, getting an embryo out is the implantation process is huge.
1: So do you think we'll ever actually get to like kind of totipotency? I mean, that's kind of the dream, right? Yikes,
0: I mean, do we want to get there? Talking about, that's the other thing that comes out of this that really trips me up is so, okay, we could have humans just being born literally out of a cell culture dish like I don't know if I want that kind of action <laughs> do you
1: I think there was a couple movies about that back in the day <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> they know hot topic.
0: they don't end well but um, you know it's it's definitely it's definitely a, a great story a big deal and like you said we're not quite there but moving in that direction uh, talking about directions you know I'm moving in the wrong direction when it comes to age. I, I'm older than you, Arun. I don't know about you, but I wake up in the morning every single morning, and I feel it—the stiffness. Oh, the stiffness! <laughs> it's just a function of aging, you know, and and that's widely recognized. That of course, aging causes a decline in tissue regeneration, um, a deterioration of regenerative capacity, and in. The, the context of, like, neural and our development that manifests as, you know, we, we're not so quick. We're not so clever. Um, and really, you know, what, I, what I'm kind of dealing with now, although I don't want to overstate it. I'm not losing it completely. Don't pity me. But, you know, I have, you struggle for words, you know, or, like, movie star names, stuff like that. And you know what that is? That's my oligos, bro. That's my myelin sheaths. <laughs> That's the insulating fibers in all my neurons, all those connections. They're not firing. They're not connected as smooth. The signals aren't getting through as smoothly as they did when I was younger because... You
1: don't look a day over 25, man. (laughs) Come on now. Don't sell yourself short.
0: You haven't seen my brain, Arun. uh, It's not a pretty picture. Um, The
1: the only thing you're missing is a Twitter account, man. And like I mentioned, we can set that up for you. (laughs) That's all there is to it. That's if, the key to aging. That's the key to eternal youth. The rejuvenating
0: you. power of Twitter. You're, you're gonna, it. It's going to be a tough sell, bro, but we could talk about that in the sideline. Um, anyway, back to my oligos. You know what the problem is? It's my oligodendrocyte progenitor cells. You know, we need to renew the supply, get my myelin she's pumping again. The problem with that is that, of course, as you get older, they, they become more quiescent right? They're not as active. Um, but why is that? It's, it's widely thought that they're just not responsive to growth signals or there's less growth signals. There's a lot of reasons that you might think. And the way, you know, this new idea, and they've done it a lot in the blood, um, the way to address this is by doing these kind of old into young and young into old type transplant models. So Robin Franklin and Kevin Chalut, who were at the Wellcome Trust and University of Cambridge, that's in the UK, if you didn't know, they were looking at niche factors, okay? They had this hypothesis that the old, if you put it into the young, it would be rejuvenated, okay? And so they transplanted uh, uh, oligodendrocyte progenitor cells from old brains into young and vice versa and found that these... uh, more advanced older OPCs, let's call them, of o progenitor cells, they can be activated if you put them in a the neonatal niche, okay, but not in their native old ragged niche. Okay. Boom. So it's a niche factor. Right? So they look, okay, is it is it secreted factors? Okay, so that's one's hypothesis. But they thought it was maybe just a change in just the microenvironment, just in the native microenvironment that wasn't, irrespective of the actual um, secreted factors, right? So they went in there and, and seeded, they took the kind of system out of the system, deconstructed it and took a decellularized brain extracellular matrix, right? From a neonate or from an aged brain, they decellularized it, right? So it's just the matrix. Um, and they found that if you put those old OPCs on a decellularized neonatal ECM, you had a tenfold increase in proliferation, right? Wow. So even without a cellular component, just the protein, just the ECM, just that matrix, it was enough. And of course the converse, if you took the neonatal and you put them on some old ECM, they lost it. All right. Mm. So what's one factor of the niche that go that, that changes as you get older? Well, it gets stiffer, just like all my joints. The matrix gets stiffer and so the hypothesis then pressed on to the idea that there's this mechanoresponsive element, right? They do some enzymes to soften the, the matrix and showed that that increased oligodendrocyte progenitors. They had some hydrogels where they could really modulate in very fine resolution the, the, the stiffness and showed again that the trend carried on. But the reason why this was a nature letter is that they went to the next level here and showed at the mechanistic level showing that there's this mechanoresponsive ion channel called pizo one and that, that that, protein that channel is a key me- mediator of this mechanical signaling apparatus and then they go on to show that if you inhibit Piezo one you can override the mechanical signals and you can then allow the OPCs to maintain activity even in an aging infrastructure, in an aging CNS, you can maintain OPC activity by overriding this mechanosensor, right? So, I mean, big story, understanding just like how the, the matrix and the stiffness of that can contribute to the function of these cells is one element, but then they go on to take it to the cell level and how that, that, that signal is integrated, and of course... Once you get there, we're talking about drug ability. We're talking about targeting this in old niche to try and rejuvenate the OPCs, which I don't know about you, Arun, but I'm slipping, bro. I could use a little bit of a softer matrix in my brain.
1: Yeah, I mean, these days, you know, the matrix is kind of uh, playing a role in all sorts of things. Like, you know, it's important for cardiac development, too. Actually, the paper I'm going to talk about next has a, has a big matrix aspect to it as well but you were kind of mentioning the the drug ability of the whole thing right isn't that so is that kind of the idea is that kind of the next step for these guys just kind of to to inhibit this piezo one, piezo one mechanotransduction uh gene is that kind of the, the next thing or would you want to like i don't know do some sort of matrix transplant to kind of uh to reverse this aging phenotype what do you think would be the next step when it comes to the drugability and the translational part of this whole thing?
0: Well, I think the good news is we got something that's a mechanosensor. Presumably, it's at the cell surface. Presumably, it's something that, you know, you can reach. You don't have to go into the cell. Um, also, you know, any system. You've got to break it, right? If you just have to inhibit it, it's, it's, I think it's easy to imagine that you could disrupt the integration of signaling with this mechanosensor. Bad news, I would say, it's in the brain. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's tough in terms of who knows about off-target. Also accessibility with the blood-brain barrier. So who knows? But uh, I guarantee that they got some kind of licensing agreement in the works trying to find the PIZO-1 drug that's going to, you know, because talk about market. Like, this is, it's not just about disease. We're talking about a lifestyle drug if you can make yeah. something that would target the PIZO.
1: I don't know. I would this take This is it. Uh, this is aging, man. You know, everybody's dying. Everybody's going through it, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. So it's a you can figure sad. Figure out a way to, to stiffness, it, bro. Know?
0: Stiffness is not desirable in most arenas as you get older. In some of them, mm-hmm. you know, we are you know, not stiff enough, in, in, mm-hmm. in, in, amongst the gender that I belong to, at least.
1: You know what? I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid that topic entirely. You know, I'm just going to go straight into the next thing. You know, I'll uh, I'll come back to that one. How yeah, about let's, that? Kind of, let's circle around on that. So the heart brain to the heart. How about that? We're going to go straight to the heart. Uh, yeah. So I'm a heart guy, as you know, you know, uh, heart guy through and through. Love making little beating cells and watching them beating the dish. I've been doing it for a few years now. Still gets me excited. You know, still pumps me up every morning. Still got to take care of those cells on the weekends, but never mind. Anyways, so this paper is called Epicardial Cells Derived from Human Embryonic Stem Cells Augment Cardiomyocyte-Driven Heart Regeneration. And this is a Nature Biotech article from Johannes Barger et al. in Sanjay Sinha's lab at Cambridge over in the UK. And apparently, this was a collaborative effort with uh, Chuck Murray, you know, uh, over at the University of Washington, who's done a ton of work over the last few years looking at cardiac regeneration. Uh, he's, you know, recently transplanted human embryonic stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes into non-human primates to see if, you know, they can restore some cardiac function after such uh, after an event such as like a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, for example but you know there's still a whole lot we don't know about cardiac regeneration and there's a ton of w- work that's going on in this field not only with Chuck Murray you know but you know different labs around the world we know that the mammalian heart has a pretty limited regenerative capacity postnatally there's some work that shows you know it's it's there earlier on during cardiac development but after you're born that ability to regenerate your heart after a heart attack, for example, is pretty much lost. Of course, this is in contrast to a lot of lower vertebrates, like the zebrafish, for example, where you can pretty much cut off like a third of the ventricle of the heart, and assuming you don't die from blood loss, it's gonna regenerate. It's pretty crazy. Um, and in fact, that's actually part of the reason that I got involved in the cardiac field. It was like I saw the work that uh, Ken Poss at Duke is doing, um, you know, back in the day, and I was like, holy cow, that's that's crazy. You're telling me you can Cut off half of the heart of the zebrafish and it's going to grow back and it's going to be okay, right? So the thought is if you can harness that, if you can harness that regenerative capacity, you know, and use it for humans, like that's, that's the holy grail, right? Like, you know, so many people have heart attacks, myocardial infarctions these days, you know, people are, you know, the Western diet, you know what I mean? It's, it's not great. So, but if we can figure out a way to regenerate the heart after like an MI, then, you know, that's, that's awesome. So anyways, um, you know, there's been a lot of work that's been done in the field, um, you know, through Chuck Murray et al. And one hope is that we can use embryonic stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes or IPS-derived cardiomyocytes to restore some lost heart cells after an event, such as a myocardial infarction, right? But the big limitations so far in the field of using these stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes for transplantation purposes in the heart has been the proper integration of these cells into the heart. So some folks like Chuck Murray uh, showed that you can get some integration of, you know, embryonic stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes into non-human primate hearts, but sometimes they have associated arrhythmias and the integration hasn't been perfect. The electrophysiology isn't quite there. Uh, So there's definitely some work that, that needs to be done. And so this, that's kind of where this paper comes in. It's sort of a follow-up to, to what Chuck Murray is doing over at the, the University of Washington. It's a pretty big-time paper that's looking at the role of the epicardium. And the epicardium is a layer of cells that surrounds the heart during uh, development, and it's also uh, associated with the pericardium, which is the sac that actually envelops the, the heart uh, in the adult as well. So I was looking at the role of the epicardium in enhancing cardiac function after transplantation of stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes into the heart after a myocardial infarction, and this is in a rodent model. So it's known that the epicardium is, uh, is a pretty important source of fibroblasts and other cell types in the heart during development, and, and kind of tying back to what we had just talked about, it's also a very important source of matrix, an extracellular matrix that's secreted to the heart, in the heart during development. So they generated epicardium from human embryonic stem cells, along with human embryonic stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes, so kind of a, a cogeneration of, of both cell types. And they basically co-transplanted these engineered heart tissues containing both cell types into the rat heart after inducing a myocardial infarction. And they saw that this presence of this epicardial tissue actually had a huge impact in terms of enhancing The contractility of the stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes, the the structure, the calcium handling, and the overall function of this engineered heart muscle tissue. And the other huge thing that they saw was uh, transplanting the epicardium with the human embryonic stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes also enhanced proliferation of these cardiomyocytes, which is a big deal since, you know, adult human cardiomyocytes don't typically proliferate. So it looks like having the epicardium in these engineered embryonic stem cell-derived heart tissues, even enhances cardiac regeneration to an extent. And it goes on, so not only that, it's also able to generate vascularization of this heart patch, just having these epicardial cells in this patch, which again is a big deal because you want the newly transplanted heart muscle that you're injecting into the heart after an MI to actually receive nutrients from the host blood supply so that it can function properly. So this is all, you know, good and great, I think. It's, you know, showing that the epicardium is super important in, you know, uh, in cardiac regeneration and enhancing this ability of transplanted IPS-derived or embryonic stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes to actually do their function. But what's the mechanism? So the thought is when you co-deliver these embryonic stem cell-derived epicardial cells, the epicardial cells, for one, might be undergoing EMT to actually give a cardiac fibroblast-like population and it might have a pretty strong tropic role during development. And two, again, kind of relating back to what we talked about, there's a secretion of a lot of extracellular matrix proteins, fibronectin in particular, that was identified through RNA-seq. And it might be this secretion of fibronectin and ECM that's actually the key to the regenerative process. So that's kind of the the idea. You know, epicardium is great. So there's a lot we don't know about it, but apparently it has a A great role in uh, enhancing cardiac function after transplantation so i think it's pretty exciting
0: yeah i've always i've been waiting for epicardium to make a splash because it's such a a a big figure in cardiogenesis you know like people talk about cardiomyocytes but really the the heart development doesn't happen even it's a shadow of itself without the influence of the epicardium there like you said the paracrine input but also direct cellular input in the context of injury, epicardium does a lot of work. So yeah, I've been waiting for epicardium to get its day in the sun. But I'll tell you, Rune. I mean, I have a question for you. Yeah. You read a story like this, and are you like, yeah, we're we're getting there? Like, har- I, I mean, I almost wonder if if epicardium alone might not be a better therapeutic cell base because then you just put it on the outside and it sh- it secretes some stuff and maybe influences the native cardiomyocytes or myofibroblast scar whatever you want to whatever whatever it wants to do but like i'm increasingly not skeptical but anxious about the possibility the engineering challenges of getting heart tissue that we grow into a heart to to save someone you know in the in the chronic phase post uh, mi how how likely we are to actually get heart tissue i mean all respect to the these gods of the field like murray and and others but i just the more i see other therapies advancing the more anxious i am about the regulatory and just technical practical considerations that may stand in the way of the heart what's your take on that you're a guy that loves the modeling aspect i know but how do you feel about the the whole cell-based thing regeneration thing
1: yeah i don't know i think um like you said there's definitely a ton of awesome work that's been going on you know by by chuck murray and like all these other folks uh, around the world but i mean to me it kind of comes down to the idea of like immaturity of these cells right you Mm -hmm. know if they're not functionally on par with adult myocardial tissue then that's that's a risk right you want these cells to be like one electrophysiologically like perfect right you don't even want to risk the possibility of causing an arrhythmia after you transplant these cells, right? That's, that's a nightmare. That's a, that's a, you know, non-starter, right? Like you can't, can't make that happen. Right. I mean, there is a lot of work like through, uh, there's some folks at Columbia university, right? Like right next door to you who have actually recently published uh, a nature article looking at, uh, IPS-derived cardiomyocyte maturation, and they did an incredible job. Uh, you know, these cells, like, were super aligned when it came to their sarcomeres, but still they had, you know, it, there's still some work that is, you know, needed to be done, right? So I'm a little skeptical when it comes to using stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes for for transplantation purposes, but again, you know, I'm an in vitro guy, so yeah, I got a bias, like, you know, so sorry, but... um. So, I mean, you know, like in the end, like if why not get rid of the whole thing, right? Like instead of, you know, doing a heart patch, why not just like eventually grow a heart like in a pig or in a dish and Mm. just kind of replace the whole dang thing, right? Like, you know, that's maybe we're not far away, right? We got some people like Hiro Nakauchi who are like working on stuff like that, right? right? So maybe, you know, give it another 15, 20 years and we can just like pop out the whole thing, just get a new one.
0: Right. Arun referring to J- in Japan, they've recently approved these uh, animal human chimeras with stem cells. So, hey, let's skip the whole patch thing. Go right to the to the meat and potatoes. Although, hey, I'm skeptical about that, too, a little bit. But, but Arun, there's one thing, you know, we don't need much imagination for because it's already in play. Uh, and that's CAR-T. You know, we hear a lot about CAR-T. We've talked a lot about CAR-T on this show. And we talk about it mostly in the context of malignancy, right? Cancer, specifically hematological malignancy. These refractory B-cell malignancies is what made CAR-T famous because they typically express as CD19, CD20, CD22. These are all targets for specific CAR-T constructs that have been used to great effect and have taken cancers that we had people on death's door. It's a full cure. So pretty amazing stuff, but what a lot of people may not know is that CAR-T was originally applied for treatment of uh, HIV and AIDS, you know, who knew, and this was years and years ago, over 15 years ago. There's papers from groups, including Carl Junes, soon after that where he was, you know, the godfather of CAR-T, they were using it to try and target HIV and AIDS and, uh, you know, they even got it such that they had CAR T cells that were persisting in HIV patients, right? But the problem with the whole immunotherapeutic strategy for HIV is hugely limited. Why? Because HIV infection it is accompanied by this huge or uh, high mutation rate of reverse transcriptase, right? So the reverse transcriptase that's copying the HIV into the genome, it's such a high error rate that you get all these mutations constantly, and that enables this rapid emergence of these immune escape variants, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have a CAR-T that's specific against one variant, it's a challenge because the HIV is going to twist, and then, you know, the CAR-T's got nothing. So, Demeter Dimitrov, Harris Goldstein, and Boro Dropulik, all right? They're from uh, Lentigen, which is a milteni biotech company, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and University of Pittsburgh, respectively, they want to take another look at this, right? Why did we give up on CAR-T for HIV? Well, they didn't. They've been grinding away on it, okay? And this is what they did. In order to get around all those issues, what they do, they made these uh, HIV-based lentiviral vectors. They took, like, the lenti from HIV, I think there's a little irony in there, as just an expression vector, right? And they had it encoding um, multiple? They call this a multi-specific anti-HIV duo-car. Okay, and a duo-car is something that has two distinct CAR molecules that consist of multiple anti-HIV binders. In this case, they are binding they had these HIV envelope binding domains, and it's not hugely important except for the fact that well, it's MD122, M36.4 and C46, okay? And what's notable and important about that is that, you know, one of the issues with CAR T therapy with HIV that, you know, if you think about it a little bit, you'll recognize is that what does HIV do? It targets the T cells, right? So you got these CAR T cells, and they're going to get totally banged out by the actual HIV and infected and become vehicles. So you need to, and that's one of the issues, you need to protect the actual CAR T cells that are going. Those are your soldiers, right? So what they have in there is the C46 peptide that I mentioned. That's and along with those other two M guys, the C46 is money because it's expressed directly on the surface of the CAR T, and it's an anchored membrane-associated molecule that potently abrogates HIV fusion to the T cell membrane. Okay, this is based on these FDA-approved fusion inhibitors, but it's like essentially a shield for all the CAR-T cells where they can, you know, fend off the HIV itself while at the same time going after it with these CAR-T molecules that attack. And there are multiple of them so they can get all these kind of escape variants. And so they tested it, all right? They had an NSG model, so a humanized model with all human blood, uh, and showed that they could potently reduce the cellular HIV infection by up to 99% in vitro and more than 97% in vivo. Um, And so, yeah, you might say, like, well, 97% is not enough, right? But, I mean, you got to think about this is that we're not talking about, like, using it maybe even as a first line, right? You have the antiretroviral therapies, but it's about, like, surveillance. These CAR T cells are going to persist. So you have a patient that is on antiretrovirals, you know, they're suppressing, they have initial suppression, and then you get the CAR-T in them, and they could have a long-term suppression without the need of continuous treatment with antiretrovirals. It seems like a long-term suppressant solution that really may have a place in the clinic, considering how CAR-T is, has really caught fire and has already been implemented to great success in the clinical landscape. So I think this is a big deal circling back, using HIV to attack HIV, using CAR-T, bringing it back from the death for HIV making a big effect i love it
1: i think it's pretty cool like you said you know i think it's uh i didn't realize that you know people were working on this for for so long because like when you whenever you think of car t right you think of like you know treating leukemias and that sort of thing right like i had i actually had no idea people were using this for for anti-hiv you know um approaches i think it's you know pretty sweet pretty cool but like you know on the on the flip side right as far as what i know and like i don't know that much about this to be honest with you but as far as i know like aren't antiretrovirals retrovirals like pretty good like haven't they been pretty effective even just like kind of on their own
0: yeah yeah you make a good point this is kind of like a john k hay scenario where you're like but aren't we doing just fine as is (laughs) but i mean in this case obviously we're not altering the germline or anything i think that, like, like I said, this is provided that CAR-T therapy uh, becomes much more practical, economical. But I can say, you know, I know I have a close friend who, who has HIV. And mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a, it just totally disrupted his life. You know, he, he had a, a life that was totally unmoored. And he was, uh, you know, he, the world was his oyster. He could do anything. And now he's tethered. By the need to constantly renew his prescription for his antiretroviral therapies, you know, to keep it suppressed. And it's it's effective and thank God for that. But, you know, if there was an alternative out there where he wouldn't be at risk constantly, and constantly taking medicine, which are not without side effects, you know, it's always nice to have another tool in the kit, I'd say.
1: For sure. I mean, like, you know, you know we're we're not in that scenario right now so like who are we to say like what's the the best way to you know to approach these things right like the best treatment and all that so
0: yeah well i'll tell so. you my buddy he's and he's obsessed with the berlin patient you know because yeah yeah whoever's yeah. on prep or on any kind of you know therapy i think there's a this idea of a full cure just to have it as an option is is a real i mean it's a big deal i think just just for their peace of mind. So it's a nice, it's a
1: nice story, I think. Options are always good. More options, the better, no, for sure. righty. so I think uh, that's pretty much it with the roundup, right? So we got some four pretty awesome papers that came out over the last couple of weeks that we kind of dove into a little bit. So going from blood to blood, you know, next up we've got our interview with uh, Dr. Steve Silvasi from Stem Cell Technologies, but first, but first stem cell is hiring stem cell technologies is a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology regenerative medicine immunology cancer and disease research united by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally stem cell is a team of scientists helping scientists they're looking for creative driven people to join their international team in vancouver Explore more than 80 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality, and science communication, all at jobs.stemcell.com.
0: Take that from a guy who recently got hired by StemCell, all right? They are hiring. He's proof. The proof is in the pudding.
1: I mean, they hired me, you know? So they can't be that bad, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, you guys. We're honored and blessed to have with us today from Stem Cell Technologies, the Senior Director, Head of Hematopoietic Products, R&D, Steve Silvassi. Dr. Steve Silvassi oversees a group of around 30 people developing novel research products and technologies for the hematopoietic stem cell, mesenchymal stem cell, muscle stem cell, and endothelial stem cell field. That's a lot of different types of cells, my man. And... (laughs) He facilitates their transition to process development, manufacturing, sciences, quality control, marketing, and sales. He does all that stuff. Thanks a million for joining us today, Steve. It's
2: a real pleasure to be here, guys.
0: Yeah, the pleasure's really ours. This is a special episode for a lot of reasons. It's, uh, you know, Arun's inaugural. We also have the treat of talking to you, my man. We're talking about blood. I always love to talk about blood. And it's special for you, too. Newly promoted this summer to senior director hematopoietic product R&D. That sounds like a pretty big deal with all those responsibilities. Congratulations, my friend. What's the uh, scope of responsibility for that job? It sounds like a lot of things. Tell us about the details a little bit, will you?
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, so Stem Cell Technologies uh, is a tool company. We develop, uh, we like to refer to it as the, kind of the picks and shovels for the stem cell uh, uh, engineering uh, sort of arena, and uh, so my area of responsibility is the development of cell culture media for the propagation of these different stem cell types that you talked about, uh, promoting their differentiation into the specific lineages that they develop into, of course, blood. Uh, there's about eight major types of blood cells, and they all have unique needs in in, in these types of culture systems. And basically, developing complete workflows for scientists, clinicians, uh, clinician researchers working in this area, um, so that they have what they need to um, do basic research as well as um, ultimately translate their discoveries into um, therapeutics for um, addressing different uh, different diseases. So, so yeah, it's it's you know stemming from this 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 base of product development and the, is you know subsequently transitioning that into uh, I- into the commercial arena. So working with our uh, product managers, working with our our sales reps, sales managers to develop the messaging, develop the you know communicate the value proposition there. Um, obviously monitoring the commercial performance, the success, uh, revenue generation of those products, identifying new gaps, uh, ways to, uh, promote new uses, uh, lots of diverse, uh, uh, parts to the job. And I, and I think, you know, I know we're going to talk about it a little bit more, but that's one of the things that I think for me at least, uh, makes working in industry a, a real, uh, a real stimulating environment.
1: So, Dr. Silvasi, kind of uh, on that point, you had mentioned that you're kind of in charge of uh, developing a lot of the the new differentiation medias that Stem Cell Technologies has you know, in the portfolio. I know lately there's been a lot of push in the field towards moving towards a chemically defined differentiation and uh, differentiation medias. Is that something that Stem Cell Technologies is really focusing on these days? Yeah, I mean, I think the industry as a whole
2: Scientists would like to know exactly what we're, what they're working with. You know, I, I came up through the uh, uh, mid-1980s, you know, when I started, and, and uh, recombinant cytokines didn't yet exist. Uh, we would use uh, conditioned media uh, stimulated by, you know, undefined cell populations that would secrete a whole uh, gamish of, of great. Stuff into the soup of a tissue culture uh, medium, and you, we would use those, those very very crude uh, systems to stimulate cell growth. But you know, with the advent of molecular biology, and, uh, and certainly a, a much more detailed understanding of the different molecular pathways that regulate, uh, both promote as well as inhibit. Uh, stem cell proliferation and di- differentiation when possible, people you know want to use um, very chemically defined um, components into their culture systems. so this is an aspect of the industry as a whole I think that uh, people are moving towards and 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 certainly for ultimate clinical use, uh, these systems have to be very uh, not only highly defined but then ultimately manufactured under very defined conditions that um improve um the safety profile
0: yeah we've come a long way uh and you know we talk about being ready for prime time having the appropriate media chemically defined but let's talk about how far we've come you know you you performed your dissertation work uh with the eaves in the Terry Fox lab, actually, you know, I don't want to age you, but decades ago, my <laughs> friend, although like, you still look like a young man. Nobody can tell that, but you're, you're a very good looking man, very young, full head of hair. Um, <laughs> but having cut your teeth in that kind of seminal age of, that yeah. was it. That was the beginning of cell-based translational therapies, you know, that was the first cell-based therapy. Do you see any, like, well, talk about how far have we come in terms of, like, uh, how we implement the science clinically and uh, how we make that, you know, transition from the lab into the clinic. And are there any parallels? Are we struggling through any of the same challenges that that faced the translation of hematopoietic cell therapies?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is interesting and remarkable. As I was thinking about uh, this this interview and I was thinking about what it used to be like when I was a student doing my, you know, I started as a summer student at the Terry Fox Lab uh, in 1985. And, uh, and as I said, this was really when recombinant growth factors were just being uh, developed. We were in our very low numbers uh, with the interleukins, uh, you know, something like ten, uh, and now, of course, we're we're well, well beyond that point. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, we were using uh, systems with conditioned media, and we were still learning a lot uh, about. What it takes to grow a stem cell, and to, uh, you know, in this case, a hematopoietic stem cell, and to promote its differentiation into the clinically relevant cell types of interest, were, which are predominantly red blood cells, uh, neutrophils to fight infection, red blood cells or erythrocytes for treating anemia, and megakaryocytes which produce platelets to fight uh, or or to to clot the blood. Those were really the major types that that people were focusing on. You know, I was in my Uh, in my PhD, when all of a a big cluster of papers came out reporting the cloning of stem cell factor, which at that time was thought to be the holy grail for stem cell expansion. So that whole problem uh, was thought to be solved and then ultimately demonstrated, you know, not to be the case. Uh, as the actions of stem cell factor, despite its name, were were more narrow than than they than was hoped. So so over the next couple of decades, you know, we've we've learned a lot about how to grow stem cells, and we're really at the point now where where all of this work is getting to the point of clinical testing. You know, my first um, industry job. Uh, a company that's no longer around. It was, uh, it was called Systemics. It was Irv Weissman's. Uh, I know you, you interviewed Irv uh, at Stanford. It was his first company. And Systemics was founded on the premise that we could purify human hematopoietic stem cells, uh, remove through that purification process contaminating uh, cancer cells, and then transfuse those back into patients and essentially um, mediate rapid. Robust long term engraftment. And so, you know, I was there when those types of studies were done and then. Over the years, I've witnessed other companies who have um, I- initially, in academia, these technologies were discovered, novel uh, small molecules, and then companies were were um, created to take them into clinical testing. and And so, for me, it's really been amazing and gratifying to see how all of this work has culminated just now. After, as you as you mentioned, sort of since the mid 1980s, after you know multiple decades of having these things now put to the test? You know, our, is all of the work that we, we've done over all of these years, can we really um, effectively expand stem cells and get them to engraft in a timely manner um, so that, you know, we, we can address a number of clinical um, needs? So yeah, a lot a lot of um, movement forward, but a lot of unanswered
1: questions as well. So you mentioned kind of being on that precipice between the academic side of things and the the industry side of things. Really, what was it that made you make that jump, that leap in the first place? Was it really to see, oh, you know, I can actually make a translational impact if I actually move on into the industry side of things? What was it that actually made you make that jump? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. And
2: frankly, I gave it no particular Deep thought. Uh, I I always only ever went where um, I was excited by the people with whom I was going to work, and uh, frankly, uh, a secondary uh, consideration, especially maybe when you're young, is is this is this an exciting geographical location? You know, I, I my my first job out of my postdoc was Systemics. And they were in California, so hey, sure, I'll go to California. That sounds great. Why not? So, so you know that was part of the decision, but 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 really the big uh, driver was you know here was Irv Weissman, you know uh, uh, a, a seminal uh, contributor in this very important area. I had an opportunity to join a company which was at that time fairly young. It was a, a little over a year or maybe two years old. They had five cell sorters, which at the time was mind blowing. You know, you couldn't you couldn't get access to that kind of technology. So it was that uh, the combination of all of those three factors. It was certainly not uh, a, a, um, the wherewithal to say, you know, what I'm I want to make these contributions. I, I want to take my basic research work and and you know translate them into clinical practice. That was you know sort of back there, but you know, I was in, in you know, still pretty young and kind of naive. <laughs> I, I didn't really think that way. It was always just, where could I go to work with the best people, with the coolest tools at my disposal, and hey, if it's in a, if it's a wonderful place to live, sounds like a great opportunity.
1: Awesome, and are you still in contact with a lot of those academic folks who are still doing work in your field? To some degree, I am. I mean, I, I I really
2: see these people when I get to conferences, you know, and there are uh, some situations where we collaborate with um, with various academics. I would say that those are new colleagues rather than the the people with whom I've had you know decades- old relationships, um, just because of the nature of the work that I now do. Um, but but, yeah, I mean, I have a, a um, a lot of history and a lot of um important friendships and professional relationships with with all of these people that that have have you know really contributed to you know your job level your your job satisfaction and just you know just feeling very gratified about what you do
0: you talk about uh what drew you to academia or to industry and Frankly, it seemed pretty arbitrary, Steve. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, all the con- I mean, the California thing seemed arbitrary, but that's a decision that a lot of young me- people make. To be honest, uh, look at Arun. He's in California as we speak. Arun. I mean,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean hey, you know, it, is, it, it was part of the decision. You know, sunshine every day. Yes, you can't argue with that. I mean, I well, have to
0: say, I,
2: correct. And I would say that while, you know, that first transition was arbitrary, you know, I've worked at three different biotechnology companies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and while that first one was, you know, based on the criteria, arbitrary and personal, et cetera, that I described, my subsequent decisions were certainly much more thoughtful.
0: Absolutely. And, and I wanted uh, to because, specify there. Yeah, so yeah. Amgen, and then stem cell tech, we can skip Amgen right. for the time being. But I just want to get a little drill down on the stem cell because although you're a real big deal there there now you, you came on the scene with stem cells years ago you've been with the you know with the, the, the company now for many years and I would I would say that you probably joined the group when it wasn't such a behemoth you know where it was kind of coming on the radar as a major force so it wasn't so well established as it is now what was it that drew you there you know that was a decision that was made in the clear light of day. You know, you were a grown-ass man, probably had a lot of other <laughs> responsibilities. This wasn't about the weather. What drew you back to, well, to BC? Well,
2: you might be surprised by by my answer to that, that question is, as well. So let me just clarify, you know, I have a long history with uh, Alan Eves bec- and, and of course, Connie, uh, because I did my PhD with with Connie uh, and, and Alan, uh, in Vancouver, in, and graduated in 1990. But then I didn't go to stem cell. You know, I went through um, a number of different places, and I uh, came back to stem cell formally as an employee in in 2012, and and that was the time when I left uh, Amgen, and or shall I say, Amgen left me. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was I was laid off um, from Amgen at that time as part of a several hundred. Uh, employee downsizing of their hematology and oncology research therapeutic area. And, um, and so, you know, I was looking for a job. And, uh, and this is not at all an uncommon situation for people in industry. Um, and, you know, I don't hide that fact. I'm not embarrassed by that fact because it's just the reality of working in industry. A lot of really good people... Um, will occasionally find themselves in, uh, you know, downsized, just like a lot of really, really smart academic scientists lose their grants. You know, so this is, I think, just an inherent part of working in this field. And so, um, you know, so I reconnected with with Alan. have of course, we had uh, continued in uh, and being in touch for over the the previous decades and. And um, and again, part, part uh, personal decision because I'm originally from Vancouver and my family is all still here. So the opportunity to come back home, if you will, was a- and complete the circle, you know, come full circle on my professional career, I think it was also very, very enticing.
1: Hmm. But the default career path these days, would you say it's still kind of on the academic side? I mean, things have definitely been changing since there's a lot more opportunities when it comes to stem cell biotech, when it comes to, you know, making these translational impacts. Um, You know, funding's pretty competitive on the academic side. So for somebody who's trying to make that jump, somebody who's trying to make the jump from academia to industry, what would you say? What would be your pitch for working in the stem cell biotech industry?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in very general terms, the the key difference uh, between working in academia and industry, and one that you have to, you know, one has to think about very carefully in terms of, you know, what matches your career objectives, your personality, et cetera, is an academic career, an academic institution is really focused on Understanding very basic biological questions, there's a lot of innovation there. Um, it's not in any way to say uh, or to imply that there isn't also significant innovation in industry, but you're innovating for a different reason. It's about um, translation, it's about application. So, you know, what is the type of work that you want to do? You could spend an entire extremely successful career in academia, decades, trying to tease apart all of the intricate nuances of a biological process and make very important contributions to our basic understanding of the science. That is critically important. But you may not, in so doing, have any significant impact, at least in the short-term and maybe in your lifetime on human medicine, on on health. Um, And so that's, I think, a key distinction is that when you then move into an industry setting, the focus is on the applied science. It's developing tools to enable basic research, clinical research, like Stem Cell Technologies does, or it's developing actual therapeutics like Amgen. What fits better with your personality type? I think that's, that's a key decision that you have to make. There are many other, you know, let's call them pros and cons, but they're really just different attributes um, about job stability, um, about uh, job diversity. And, and by that, I mean, you know, what your day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year job really is it's it's much broader and different and in my view then more interesting and stimulating in an industry environment um, and and so those are other aspects um, you know we can talk about those more you know
1: and do you still think it's a realistic possibility for even for people in academia to kind of maintain a foot in both the academic setting and the industry setting
2: I think it's uh, it's certainly more possible to do that than it ever has been. We have a lot of um, academic partners with whom we work, and it was true at Amgen as well uh, when I worked there. Um, that w- where where these people are running very uh, productive research labs that might focus on basic biology. Um, but an offshoot of that is a discovery that is logically something that you can turn into a therapy. And then they'll reach out to an industry partner and work with them to to develop it. And uh, if that becomes successful, then that academic researcher can participate in the uh, clinical testing of, of that um, candidate therapeutic. Uh, depending on the nature of the Arrangement, the licensing agreement, and ultimately the uh, royalty profit-sharing agreement between the academic institution, academic lab, and 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 the commercial entity, which ultimately commercializes a drug or a product. You can have money coming back to the academic institution that then will allow them to uh, support additional basic research, and 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 it's all sort of self self. Propagating, and so I've seen many examples of people who have, uh, in academia, who have elected to maintain, you know, their predominant footing in that setting, um, but who have been very successful uh, collaborators with industry partners, and and you know, say that they, they they as a result and very successfully have their 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 toe in both uh, both tubs, if you will.
0: So just, you know, I, I've just always observed that um, when you talk o- about it with young people, I think the path typically is a, uh, you know, you're so excited coming out of your PhD because you finished, right? And you have this yeah. uh, this whole, it's this, your unique basic science, your own contribution. It's real and you're ready to move on and do the big science and it's your own creative you know, thing. You know, the impetus comes from you, and nobody's going to tell you your science. You're going to f- pick a good question and make your contribution. And then you're disillusioned over the course of maybe one, two postdocs, and then you say, you know that industry that sounds about right. And just for the reasons that you describe it, I think a lot of people find satisfaction there. Um, but so you see the one the transition the one way. And like you said, you you see some people who maintain a footing in both worlds um, to whatever degree, but you very rarely see, people who go from industry back into academia, right? Um, right. Do you think that there really is like kind of a point of no return? Because I think that's yeah. the sentiment yeah. that a lot of academic people coming out of grad school are like, well, if I'm gonna go into industry, yeah. let me at least try a postdoc first because there is this notion of point of no return. And like, here's another question. Would you go back? What would it take to draw you back to academia? Right. Are there no context so, in which that would work?
2: Yeah, that, uh, a great question, a- and so, it's unusual, I think, for people to go from industry back to academia. I did it once so so as I'm you know again, I talked about my first job at Systemics. I was at Systemics for three years. That was my quote unquote first real job after I had finished my postdoc and um, and as great as that experience was, um, there were aspects of, of that experience that led me to decide to go back to academia. And so that's when I went and took on a classical uh, assistant professor professorship at the University of Kentucky, where they were starting a brand new uh, hematology-oncology research group. and um, And so I came back to academia after having been out of the circuit, if you will, Uh, for three years while I was at Systemics at a fairly, you know, I was still at at, at an early stage of my career. So I wasn't, um, I I think maybe I I had less to lose, if if you will. Um, And so um, it was not a difficult transition. I, I think it was made easier by the fact that I, knew the group into. I knew the people in the group into which I was going and, and I think you know that's one of the things that that I would say about all of my different transitions back and forth between academia and industry as I mentioned at the very beginning I I went where I had an opportunity to work with with the best people people with whom I had a good productive relationship and so, when you have people like that to facilitate these transitions, then you're not just left on your own to sort of flounder. And and so, I would I would advise younger people who are thinking about that, or you know, even somebody who's mid career or even late career. You know, a few, a few years ago, I was having uh, conversations with somebody who had been uh, an extremely successful academic researcher for. Thirty years, but was starting to struggle in get in, in sustaining their grant funding, and was seriously entertaining the possibility of going to uh, to bio, the biotech industry, and and I think that that person, if they had have ultimately decided that they would do it, they they didn't, um, they would have been very successful. So I I think there are now no real hard and fast rules. I think, you know, if you've been out of, academ- out of academia for um, probably, I, you know, it's an arbitrary number, but let's say something on the order of four to five years. You've gone to industry. It's that's for me. That's my sense. Is that's kind of the point of no return, or at least difficult return.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's get to the work for a minute. Uh, so yeah, we talk about you know what drives you, and I think you did a good summation at the outset there, like how, how much is involved, you know? It's not just the translational aspect, but in order to fit into the, to the, to the company and the overarching goals, you gotta, you know, there's like messaging, there's, there's finding and developing the market, developing relations. It's very complicated, I think. A lot of PIs would go and be like, oh, I, I mean, I thought they were just giving me a chunk of money to translate this, I don't know how to deal with all that. <laughs> But, um, you know, in in the day-to-day, I still think while there's all, all that, you know, company stuff that the guys like you and most, I would say, the scientists that are in play there, they're not motivated by a financial endgame. I think it's still a human endgame, right? It's still, sure. like you said, it's more even human. It's I want to see the stuff that I do go into patients and have a benefit for someone right. in my lifetime. So you right. could argue that it's even more of a human impetus there. So you know, in the hematopoietic stem cell field, the holy grail there, as you talked about, self-renewing, transplantable stem cell, ideally maybe in this case from an IPS cell or directly converted from a mature cell, so it's patient-specific. Where does your group and where does stem cell tech fit into that goal?
2: Well, as I said, uh, we develop the tools that enable those different biological processes. So, you know, I'm very gratified to be able to say that the work that is done by the scientists in my group, because they're the ones that are in the lab doing the actual work. Um, They are developing products that when compared head-to-head with the existing protocols that have been reported uh, by uh, academic groups in the literature, or compared head-to-head with other commercial products from our peer companies in this uh, this sector. they are more often well i I would say always superior. we wouldn't launch them if they weren't superior they wouldn't sell uh, and so f- to be able to um, produce these these tools, these culture media these these different uh, combinations of complex uh, uh, Mixtures of growth factors, small molecules to work out all of the details of the timing of when they are each one of them is to be added, when it's to be washed out and replaced with another supplement, and to to refine that to the point where you can you can flip the switches that you need to flip and make a cell do what you want it to do, and then ultimately um, have that cell be uh, such that it can retain all of the, or possesses all of the normal functional properties that the normal counterpart would, you know, an ex vivo generated red blood cell would behave like a normal red blood cell, uh, et cetera. Um, you know, it, it, that's that's magic. I mean, that's, that's uh, it, it, you know, amazing that, that we can do that in such a crude uh, environment of a, of a, a plastic dish hmm. uh, with sugar water, because hmm. that's essentially what what these systems are. And so the, the fact that, that, you know, through the work done in, in academia and understanding, you know, the, the molecular pathways that we have to flip on and flip off, and then through, uh, uh, you know, molecular uh, biology having produced the appropriate recombinant molecules and then and then just knowing how to add them all together, I think, again, it's just it's it's amazing that, that we can achieve what we can achieve. again, it's 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 now at the point where they're going to be tested in the clinic. and 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 it, we're finding that uh, despite the fact that we may be able to amplify numbers of stem cells by hundreds fold, despite the fact, that we can produce many tens of thousands of, for example, um, uh, granulocytes per starting stem cell in a culture system. Really amplify the system up. When you infuse those cells into patients, they they don't do everything that we wish that they would do. So there's still a lot of problems to be solved there. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, I, but but we're making we're making progress.
1: So I'm an iPS cardiomyocyte guy, kind of through and through. I know you're more of a blood guy, um, and it's I think it's super fun to work with, you know, functionally active cells like iPS derived cardiomyocytes because you can actually see them beating in a dish. You know, right. I think it's it's super super fun. Right. Uh, so can you talk about some of the products that you know Sem- Stem Cell Technologies has available for the cardiac field? I always think it's great to see what you guys have done for you know chemically defined differentiation approaches, for example. Uh, And I think you guys have some really great products. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, it's
2: interesting that you raise the the cardiac uh, cell type because it's a cell type that we've not been working in for very long. Um, But despite that, we've had tremendous success. So we have um, a a particular scientist. His name is uh, Enzo Macri, or Vincenzo Macri. He's uh, a a recent recruit. He's been at Stem Cell for about uh, three years or so, I think. And um, you know he, we had nothing in the cardiac field, and he came in and he developed a uh, an entire workflow comprised of about, of about five different products to um, promote the uh, differentiation of, uh, of pluripotent stem cells into cardiac progenitor cells, and then. And then to prop, uh, and then to promote their differentiation into cardiomyocytes, and then to, which as you mentioned, are, you know, beat in culture, and then to propagate up la- very large numbers of those cells, we developed a freezing medium to to facilitate the cryopreservation of those cells, and then uh, that allows investigators to to bank up lots of these cells that they can then thaw at will. And there are uh, a number of uh, partners with whom we've been working to essentially demonstrate the utility of that system for drug discovery so there are there's a lot of interest in developing drugs that address different uh, problems with uh, arrhythmia mm-hmm. um, and there are a lot of drugs that have off-target cardiotoxicity mm-hmm. so there are different companies that are developing therapeutic agents for these different applications that are using the cardiomyocyte system that uh, Enzo has developed for, for testing. And it's really cool because, you know, there, there's one particular culture system where there are uh, there's two micro-pillars that stick up from the bottom of the plastic dish, and, we, and it involves the seating down on the bottom of the plastic dish of these cardiomyocytes. And when they beat, they pull these two pillars closer together, and the rate and strength of that contraction can then be measured uh, when you add different drugs or or subject the culture system to different either stimulatory or inhibitory signals. and And this forms the basis of some real interesting um, you know just a platform for for addressing a number of questions around around n- new drug discovery.
1: And so kind of on that point, you know, I think one big limitation of the stem cell-derived whatever field, you know, whether it's cardiomyocyte, whether it's blood, whether it's neuron, is that these cells are relatively functionally immature, right? And so is that something that SCT, Stem Cell Technologies, is also uh, attempting to address?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it,
1: uh, you can
2: uh, tune the culture system as you want. To either keep the cells in a very primitive state, or to promote uh, a differentiation into a mature cell type. So we have products and tools that will allow you to do both. And there are um, different uh, at, at times that you will want to do one or the other. And so um, you know that's just an, an aspect of the of the uh, culture system that you 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 know have that opportunity to to um, keep cells primitive or or. Pr- promote maturation.
0: Yeah, I think that there's a a really interesting point behind this question, which is, you know, and and really it speaks to the process that you just described, right? When you're developing a product for, you know, people think cardiac, uh, you know, progenitors or whatever from IPS cells, but the reality is is that you have to develop all the, the cocktails for sequential differentiation that are defined. then you have to develop some means for cryopreservation. And then there's a thaw thing. And then there's a sustained culture if you want them to be primitive or mature. And then there's the devices, right? And you well, got the pillars. So there's all these elements, right? And you, you're a guy who comes from transfusion medicine, right? And this was the stem cell therapy. It was the cell-based therapy, but it was relatively monotypic, right? It was, it was, you take the cells out, you, you know, transplant them, you know, sometimes you expand them, but it's one type of product, right? Whereas I feel like in the future of cell-based therapies with pluripotent stem cells, what we're talking about is all these different cell types and all these different organs, right? So how do we get that working clinically at a massive scale? And in, in uh, treatments, you got this kind of specialty of transfusion medicine, right? Is there going to be a subspecialty in, in hepatology? Is there going to be a specialist who deals with cell-based transplantation? Or alternatively, I mean, let's just speculate wildly about the distant future. Is it going to be entities, do you think, like stem cell technologies that serve as this kind of interface between the clinic and the regulatory apparatus where they have under their purview, all of, they generate, they do all the stuff and their output is cells for clinical use. Do you think that that's the, the form it's going to have to take with the um, behemoth? I mean, it's going to take such a massive company to encompass all of that technology. Is that like a realistic vision? And is that what you think that we're working towards? Or does that seem to be like two pie in the sky? Right. I mean, I think th- that is the vision, but I, I think... It buried in
2: your, your comment there was, you know, who's going to do what? And I think that it will be a scenario where different entities will be doing different aspects of that process. There will be tool companies like Stem Cell Technologies and others that are going to develop the uh, the reagents for isolating, uh, purifying very specific cell types, and culture media for propagating them and, and maturing them. Uh, there will be a, a whole suite of products that are research use only that will enable technology development, and then there will be a whole separate suite of products, and there already is, of uh, media that are manufactured under so-called GMP or good manufacturing conditions, uh, good manufacturing process conditions, and um, and those are a, a higher level of compliance, um, and that is what is going to be needed for at least late stage probably phase three and beyond clinical testing and ultimate um, therapeutic use the tools that i've just described will then be used by a separate group these will be the cellular therapeutics companies who will be the ones that will be actually manufacturing the cells probably uh, banking them Uh, they're different you know whether you're talking about autologous cells you know, which are propagated from each individual patient's own tissues, or whether you're talking about an allogeneic or universal cell bank, we can where you can you know freeze down many hundreds mm-hmm. of therapeutic doses. There are different unique uh, attributes to those two different approaches, but but that cellular therapy manufacturing will be done by a set of companies, probably. Different companies, broadly speaking for different uh, cell types. Hmm. You know, we've been talking about cardiomyocytes, and blood cells, et cetera. and then and then where do uh, where is it that patients actually get treated? Where are the therapeutics actually used? That will, of course, be in a clinical setting. and uh, And so you'll have uh, large groups of of clinical investigators, and ultimately, you you we may get to the point where there are satellite Cellular therapy clinics, which are sort of offshoots of uh, or satellites of the, the the company that does the cellular therapy manufacturing. You know mm-hmm. that was one of the things that uh, when I was at Systemics that was very unclear in the business model. How is this going to work? Uh, is is a cellular therapy company going to manufacture the cells, freeze them, send them to a distant clinical site where they then have to be thawed and administered bedside, or should there be satellite processing and manu- cellular cell manufacturing facilities set up at, at sort of hubs throughout the country where patients can go mm-hmm. so that uh, fresh cells can be manufactured. They don't, in, in, in certain applications, need to be frozen. You know, how does that all work? But the, uh, the point is there's going to be different people doing different things. I don't think that it's the sort of thing that is amenable to um, you know, one entity doing everything.
0: Hmm. Think about that. I mean, how many companies, you got a company or multiple companies for every disease, for every organ, the way you picture it. And I think you're right on. I mean, it's not, an, it's too much for any one entity to be able to, to, to carry it all. But think about the, the, the boon for the economy. I mean, biotech and cell-based therapy stands to really do a lot for, I mean, not just sick people, but uh, the economy. Now, coming to the end, uh, we want to go with a couple science peripheral questions, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, The first I'll come in with is what was your greatest science blunder?
2: (laughs) This is a funny story, I think. Uh, And I I get together with uh, a few of my colleagues that were there in the lab with me at the time during my PhD that that I made this enormous blunder, and we laugh about it even even almost 30 years later. This was back in the day when... uh, The way that we did, uh, the the way that we evaluated engraftment in in mouse transplant models, this was before uh, congenic mouse strains and recombinant uh, and and monoclonal antibodies that were specific to the LY5.1 versus 5.2 antigen, CD45. You know, nowadays the way people do transplants is they'll take, you know, one, particular genetic strain, they'll put it into the recipient strain, they'll allow engraftment to take place, and then they'll measure engraftment by staining with antibodies, staining of the blood with antibodies. This was before all of that. And so the way that we would, uh, that I would assess in in my PhD studies, whether the stem cell populations that I was working with could engraft, was I would put male cells into female mice. And and then I would uh, analyze the degree of engraftment by extracting the DNA from the recipient's uh, hematopoietic tissues, like the bone marrow, the, the thymus, the spleen, et cetera, um, and running Southern blots. I mean, instead of getting an answer in like an hour, I, you had to spend a day extracting DNA. Then you'd have to run it out on a gel. Then you'd have to blot the gel onto a membrane. Then you'd have to make a probe. No kits available at that time. radioactive everything was radioactivity, not you know chemiluminescence, etc. So, so you know where where in all of this was the blunder? I had just spent you know more than twenty four hours uh, with my precious purified DNA samples running a gel, and then the next process uh, part of this uh, process was to to blot that onto a uh, nitrocellulose membrane. And again, this is it sounds very uh, sort of uh, hokey, but the way we would do this, we'd lay out our gel, we'd lay the nitrocellulose membrane over top of that gel, and we'd stack paper towels about two inches high on top of the gel, and we put a little bit of weight on top. And over multiple hours, occasionally overnight, the weight would compress the gel, and the DNA would move onto the nitrocellulose membrane. This took days. <laughs> So I just spent days doing this. And at the end of this, I, you know, disassembled everything and was very excited about having my nitrocellulose membrane ready for uh, baking and eventually probing with uh, uh, a probe that was specific to the sequences on the Y chromosome. Again, that's how I would measure male uh, stem cell engraftment. So I very carefully which was what we did back then i put my nitrocellulose membrane in a folded up paper towel and i set that on my desk while i cleaned my bench And it was like two o'clock in the morning sprayed down my my bench top did all kinds of wiping reorganizing my test tube racks or so forth and and then at the end i, I grabbed my paper towel that, that i'd been wiping with and i crumpled it up into like a basketball and i you know did a, a beautiful sort of jump shot of, of it into the into the waste bin awesome i'm done for the night I'm gonna get my nitrocellulose membrane into the oven, and I'll, in the morning I'll come back and be ready for probing. And so I'm looking around for my my blot, and, and which I had set aside, folded in this piece of paper uh, paper towel while I was doing my cleaning. And I'm looking around and I can't find it. And and then the blood drained from my head as I realized that the piece of that last paper towel that I had wet, wiped my bench with and that I'd ultimately crumpled up in a ball and shot that basket with was my nitrocellulose. Oh, oh, nitrocellulose no. is very brittle. Uh, it, it you know it will not take any kind of crumpling. it just it just goes to powder. And sure enough, I went to the waste bin disassembled it, and there goes, you know, the last oh, two days worth of work. And, oh, and I was boy. extremely angry, and I vowed that I wasn't going to leave the lab until I was back at this place where I just screwed up again. So I, I stayed another, uh, you know, almost another 15 hours and just worked nonstop until I got to that point. But it was Steve. Of course, my colleagues were laughing, <laughs> and I was uh, very, uh,
0: very bummed out. <laughs> Look, upside, you made the shot, right? So yeah.
2: <laughs> well, it was a, one of those really, really big waste baskets.
0: <laughs> well, hey, a blunder, but you made it back. You got back to square one, I'm sure. And, yeah. and yeah. let me ask you this: Did you have engraftment?
2: I did well, there I did. you go. so it was a successful experiment and and of course, I you know I had the DNA to go back to. I just had to rerun the gels, et cetera. but but uh, yeah, all was
0: not lost thirty six hours later, we have engraftment, ladies and gentlemen. yeah, that's
1: right. <laughs> I guess following up on that one, so who would be your greatest scientific heroes? you know i I
2: maybe interpret this question or, or the, the sort of the value system that I apply in answering this question may be a little bit different than others. For me, my heroes are the people that have really made a major impact, a major contribution um, to the field, but also maintained you know, work-life balance. Uh, I've worked with a lot of people over the years who um, work seven days a week, 12 hours a day, they have a family that they probably don't see as much as they should. And I've always felt that it was important, as much as what we do in science uh, is critically important and really drives us to, to have that balance. So, you know, I think my heroes are the people that that I've worked with that that Maintain that balance and and you know, I've worked with a lot of great people over the years. I I could name names um, But if I missed anybody out, they you know, they might say well, what about me? So I'd say really for me It's about an attribute um, You know that proper balance Um, There are people that taught me important lessons. I I remember to this day uh, a quote from Connie Connie Eves uh, that I've carried with me essentially my whole career, and 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 it's been a guiding principle. And that's, as she always used to say, it's less important to be um, first than it is to be right. And what she meant by that is, you know, not about you know always wanting to be right in an argument per se, but doing careful, meticulous work that stands the test of time. Um, and if somebody beats you into a publication in Nature or Science, etc. Because you know they maybe cut some corners, but but they got that glory publication. Um, it's really more important to have the follow-up publication in perhaps a less prestigious journal, but really have one that was just rock solid. Mm. And so I think that's really you know an aspect of another aspect of who my my heroes are. And then the last person I might um, uh, identify as is a, a guy by the name of Graham Molyneux. He uh, passed away from um, glioblastoma multiforme about six seven years ago. He was one of my managers at Amgen, and and he taught me a lesson which I think is probably most relevant to the role that I have now, and 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 that was that you know your job as a manager your number one job as a manager is to enable your team to enable your direct reports to succeed. So. Is that that approach to management about not seeking sort of self glorification, uh, self recognition, and just sort of taking a back seat um, and enabling and facilitating the successes of your team? I think that's really another thing which, to me, is very heroic.
0: Wow, some sage advice from Steven Silvasi. <laughs> You won't get it anywhere else, ladies and gentlemen. That's some good stuff. Uh, really, thanks for joining us. This has been a delightful and really fascinating conversation, a different, I think, insight than we get from most of our guests. So we really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Dylan. Thank you, uh, Arun. Uh, congratulations in your new role. And i um, looking forward to tuning in and hearing lots of really uh, stimulating discussion in your, in your future podcast. It's really been a
1: pleasure. I appreciate it. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info@stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.